The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. We lose billions of dollars and if we didn't do business with them, we wouldn't lose billions of dollars. It's called decoupling, so you'll start thinking about it. You'll start thinking. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. U.S. US futures pointing higher this hour as President Trump pledges to end America's resilience or reliance, rather, on China's once and for all. Uh, While uh, Chinese Premier Xi Jinping says he supports multilateralism but is ready for external risks. Investors satisfy their thirst for liquidity and pile into debut trading of Hong Kong water giant Nongfu, sending shares over 80% higher than its IPO level. AB InBev tells CNBC the drinks titan has no comment on a report that the search is underway for a new CEO. Amid claims Carlos Brito is looking to step down after 16 years at the helm. And Brexit negotiations hitting more snags. Now, this is weighing on Sterling, partly head of the EU stability mechanism, Klaus Regling, tells CNBC that investors have never been so confident in Europe. What we in, in the European Union have known for a long time, that we are fairly well coordinated. Doesn't mean that we always say the same thing from the beginning, but we know how to cooperate, we know how to deal with a crisis. So let's focus on the latest comments from President Trump. Uh, The U.S. president once again raising the prospect of decoupling the American economy from China, ramping up his criticism of Beijing ahead of the November presidential election. The U.S. leader claims the economy would not lose out if the uh, two economies were less reliant on one another and argued the move would bring manufacturing jobs back to America. China is spending the money we give them to build up their military. So when you mention the word decouple, it's, uh, it's an interesting word. So we lose billions of dollars. And if we didn't do business with them, we wouldn't lose billions of dollars. It's called decoupling. So you'll start thinking about it. You'll start thinking. Well, China has accused the U.S. of bullying and sanctioning some of its largest tech firms. The statement comes as Foreign Minister Wang Yi unveiled a global data security initiative as a way to try and boost confidence in China's handling of information. Let's get out to Sam now for more on this story. And Sam, just how far forward does this latest initiative from Wang Yi take us? Good morning to you, Jeff. I just want to start with that that decoupling, this idea of this, because the more we do hear of this, the more we sort of see China going at it alone. We've actually heard uh, from President Xi Jinping actually in the last uh, hour or so, while he did say uh, that uh, he would, uh, you know, deepen reform, he did say China will prepare for coping uh, with external risks in the long run, will expand domestic demand uh, and safeguard job, food uh, and energy security, which of course does come uh, after Trump did uh, raise this idea of decoupling uh, with uh, the US and China. So the timing of this, of course, is significant, but it is consistent with this great 
greater emphasis now by China to really support the domestic economy in the face of some of this U.S. pressure. And so I think this is largely all very much part of this. China now unveiling its own initiative in an effort to set its own global standards when it does come to data security in the face of this increasing U.S. pressure on Chinese companies and U.S. efforts to actually convince other countries to block them. And this, of course, just comes a month after the U.S. itself detailed its own so-called clean network initiative, which aims to exclude Chinese companies based on national security grounds, including removing what they say are untrusted Chinese apps from U.S. app stores, while at the same time encouraging other countries to actually follow suit. So this Chinese initiative now calls for tech firms to not create back doors in their services or products that would allow data to be obtained illegally and also calls on participants not to carry out large-scale surveillance of other countries or illegally obtain user data by using information technology. Now, there's no specific mention in this initiative today about the U.S.'s clean network program, nor did China give any details about why it's actually launched this initiative or if any other countries have joined it, but it is a lot you know, of detail in, in this Chinese initiative that does address these accusations by the U.S. And so this is widely seen as perhaps countering now these U.S. efforts to isolate these Chinese companies. Back to you guys. Sam, thank you very much indeed for that. Well, let's have a uh, chat about this, guys. Um, the reality is, of course, that um, what Trump says politically doesn't match up with what's happening economically. A very cursory glance through the import-export data shows increasingly America is more and more reliant on goods shipped from China. And the August numbers are very clear. Shipments jumped 20% to $44.8 billion. The trade gap Effectively, the surplus widened by 27% through the month of August here. And China's broad exports grew nearly 10%. So even as the American president likes to talk about decoupling at this stage, the reality is these two economies are very closely intermingled on a whole slew of areas, not just in technology. And it will take more than the words of President Trump at this point to disentangle them. Well, this was part of the campaign pledge, wasn't it, to decouple from China. The anti-China rhetoric clearly takes up a lot of airtime, uh, has a lot of noise, a lot of fireworks, a lot of tensions, and, and certainly uh, keeps many of the agencies busy. But as you point out by numbers, the strategy, the policy has been a failure. It hasn't worked. Now, if you look at what the uh, decoupling means this time around and what President Trump has pledged, is it arguably uh, more dangerous because you've got a president who knows how to use executive orders, he now knows how to use the agency's diplomacy with other countries to tighten the screws on China. And if that is the pledge he's taking to the electorate this time round, what do we need to think of? And he's talking in particular about making it harder for some of the US firms to do business in China. Uh, and that's a problem because we know if you're a global firm that you need to put people on the ground in China. But outsourcing workers, as it's been called by the uh, president, is seen as a negative. But we've seen it in other countries as well. I remember being in Paris when 
American companies were bringing jobs to the French economy. It's the same story in China. If you want to have access to that country, you have to bring jobs, you have to bring some investment, and typically does come through plant and jobs. So if, if the president wants a lot of these big American companies to stay global and have ambitions in China, and that's part of a, a global ambition, then you've got to keep the doors open. And I would argue this is an overreach by the president. Uh, Steve, come on into this conversation. I mean, it seems to me that um, the president maybe can be effective, whereas Karen points out he focuses on things that China really Mm. wants, which is access to leading edge technology from American companies. Otherwise, difficult to decouple in areas where we're talking about relatively low value mass produced products. I think you two have beautifully summed up what is going on here and now. But I think you have to look back and you have to look forward as well, because this is about something that's bigger than Donald Trump, perhaps even bigger than President Xi as well. Uh, And you both know that full well as well. And this is about um, a threat to what Francis Fukuyama said was the end of history. Now, interestingly, I checked when Fukuyama wrote that. I know we've all read it. Uh, And he, he wrote it in 1992, just at the end of the Cold War, just as the war was collapsing, just as liberal democracies and capitalism seemed that they had completely won. It was game over, the end of history. Well, it ain't, is it? And let's be honest about it. We've got a competition now which transcends Donald Trump, which was way before he came in. And I do remember, which I know a lot of our viewers remember, some of the bellicose language actually from the previous administration about their pivot away from concentrating on Russia to looking at getting more assets into the Pacific because they were worried about resource competition. You two have brilliantly talked about the technological competition, about who's going to be setting standards on 5G, on data, on a whole host of global issues as well, about influence. Uh, and and what the One Belt and Road, if nothing else, is about influence and resources and politics as well. So I think this is way bigger than, dare I say it, Donald Trump on whether he decides to have uh, an olive branch going out in the next month to uh, the Chinese ahead of election or whether he thinks a more bellicose strategy is important as well. So I, I think you, everything you've said so far is correct. But this is bigger than just another international dispute as well. This is about a systemic change and how we are going to see politics, resources, you name it, going forward for the next 20, 30, possibly way longer than that, 50, 100 years. I think you you raise a good long-term picture there, Steve. Well, part of the conversation, but now let's push on and take a look at Japan, where the economy has suffered its worst post-war contraction after shrinking by more than 28% during the second quarter. The world's third largest economy continues to grapple with the impact of coronavirus on capital expenditure, as well as household spending. Real wages in Japan fell for the fifth continuous month in July. The dismal data comes as the country gets ready to elect a new prime minister, with the leadership vote expected to be held next week. And the detail as the Japanese chief cabinet secretary, Yoshihide Suga, has signaled he could call a snap election if he becomes the country's next prime minister. Suga, a front runner to replace the outgoing leader Shinzo Abe, told Japanese newspaper Asahi that the prime minister has a right to dissolve parliament. But he added the government will prioritise dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. 
Let me take you to some of the market action. And first up, but let's take a look at the Asian markets today. Japan is actually pushing into the green. We've got a bounce of half of a percent, but losses across the Chinese markets. You can see a reversal for Shenzhen and Shanghai. The Hang Seng and Hong Kong also trading weaker today. But the U.S. has been out of action. We are looking for the return today after that long weekend for Labor Day. The signals this morning, I think all eyes are really on the Nasdaq. Typically, it's on the Dow, maybe the S&P. But the Nasdaq, after the selling we saw at the end of last week, particularly those big tech names and with the revelation of the Nasdaq whale being SoftBank, the market's closely eyeing what happens in this area of the markets. But Nasdaq futures are still trading weaker at this stage, despite green that's splashing up on both the Dow and S&P 500. The opening calls in Europe after what was a fairly terrific day, despite the lack of direction from Wall Street, we saw a bounce in the FTSE. We had gains of 2.4%. So we are seeking a little bit more on the charts this morning. Uh, now performance two for the DAX, which was up 2%, as that market also looks to add to that position this morning. But not a bad session overall. And we uh, certainly lifted closer to that 6,000 point mark again on the FTSE, Jeff. Yeah, but what's interesting is in the futures, the implied open for the NASDAQ is still negative at this point. So a reasonable forecast for a bounce back for both the Dow and the S&P, but still some drag, it seems, on the technology side. And it's interesting how SoftBank shares continue to trade here as the market is worried about exactly how large their involvement in the options market is at this point around technology companies. Well, it tells us a different story from what we were hearing from a lot of fund managers, that this is the place to be, the acceleration, the digital trends. You want to own these big companies. It tells us there's been a lot of hot air in the markets. There's been huge amount of trading behind the scenes. And this is SoftBank arguably trying to make up for the losses on some of those unicorns by trying to get it back in the market using as much leverage as possible. Mm. That does not tell a healthy picture about the, this K-shape access that we've seen on the market. Trouble is, the two statements are not mutually exclusive. It could be the right place to be because there's growth in a low-growth world, but perhaps it is currently overinflated because of the actions of uh, hedge funds like uh, SoftBank. We, we should call <laughs> we it a hedge fund these that, yeah. days and not a private equity business, I think. Anyway, let's move on. Shares in Chinese bottled water giant Nongfu Spring have popped more than 85% in their debut day of trading on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange after the IPO was more than 1,000 times oversubscribed by retail investors. Uh, Sherry joins us now. Sherry, the obvious question then I guess is did the investment bankers price this one wrong at 21 Hong Kong dollars they left a lot of money on the table But, you know, I think that was one of the factors that enticed so much retail investors and money as well. And also what's unusual about this particular IPO is that the deposit lockup period was actually 10 days. Well, unusual given that it's usually around uh, four to five days. And remember, this is uh, perhaps one of the tactics to really entice a lot of money for this IPO. Remember, there are a lot of uh, share sales happening in fact, Young China, for example, just this Thursday as well. So let's talk about what happened on the day of. Not as hot as the gray market action that we saw on Monday this week, but still the stock is up 57% from the issue price of 21 Hong Kong dollars and 50 cents. So just to give you, uh, you know, sort of a bit of a context, that uh, this issue price actually values the firm at 31 billion U.S. dollars. We're talking about number one player in bottled water market in China with a 20% of market share. And get this, we have a new name for the richest man 
in China. So surpassing the net worth of Jack Ma as well as the Tencent Holdings Pony Ma. Now, uh, Chairman Zhong Shanshan, he's the founder of this, this company. His net worth is standing at 50.2 billion U.S. dollars with this paper wealth coming from this Nofu Springs IPO. And you got to also factor in his shares in this COVID-19 uh, test kits uh, company uh, as well. And of course, uh, the retail oversubscription running at over 1,147 times. And get this, with that 10-day lock-up period for the deposits, 87 billion U.S. dollars worth of money, capital locked up for this IPO, waiting for their allocations as well. Guys, back to you. Thank you very much for that, Sherry. Well, coming up on the show, we're going to be hearing from Signify's CEO, Eric Wondelat, as the Dutch lighting company reaches carbon neutrality. More on that initiative right after the break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Signify has achieved carbon neutrality by now using 100% new renewable electricity. The Dutch lighting company said it has reduced emissions by 70% since 2010, adding its five-year plan hopes to double its positive impact on the environment. Eric Rondelay joins us, CEO of Signify. Eric, congratulations on achieving such a major milestone. It has taken a number of years to embark upon this journey. Just give us a sense of how difficult it was and whether other companies can follow suit. Yes, good morning, uh, Karen. Effectively, it has been a, a very long journey. We started that about eight to 10 years ago, and uh, we are now reporting a 70% reduction on our uh, CO2 footprint. And it was by looking across all our organization, industrial sites where we selected uh, energy efficient technologies, also our non-industrial sites where we try to optimize our footprint and also bring energy efficient technologies. We looked also at our business travels. Uh, we looked at our supply chain in general. We also involved our suppliers, auditing them, making sure that they were also complying to our sustainability requirements. We also invested, and, and that's important to say because it's not only about uh, renewable electricity, it's also about investing in virtual power purchase agreements. You're helping people who want to develop uh, electrical energy generation of renewables to be able to do their investments. And we have two virtual power purchase agreements, one in Texas for the US and one in Poland for Europe. You know, Poland is a country where we are very involved, also a country which is relying a lot on fossil fuels. So we wanted to make sure we were helping there. I am predicting that in the non-so-distant future, we'll be able to have power purchase agreement covering our whole electrical consumption uh, in Europe. So as you can see, a lot of hard work, and we're very happy that it uh, uh, comes to a very successful conclusion. You know, we had said that at the end of 2020, we would be carbon neutral. We are one of the first manufacturing companies to be able to achieve this. And a bit, you know, before uh, the deadline as we are today officially a carbon neutral worldwide in all our operations. 
Eric, carbon neutrality is not just good for the environment, but also good for the company. I was looking at some of the targets that you've set around revenues uh, from circular revenues and also from uh, brighter lives, innovations, benefiting society. You've got revenues penciled in to double there as well. Just walk us through some of the initiatives and why that's good for business. Yeah, that's my very strong belief. You know, when you are complying with the highest requirement in terms of sustainability, it's also good for your business. Now, you know, we're starting from a very strong position since we're already carbon neutral uh, now into a 20. So we have a new sustainability program until 2025. And we want from that very strong position to double our impact, our positive impact on society and on the environment. So we know that climate change is more than ever you know, at uh, the top of the preoccupations uh, worldwide. Uh, we know that uh, the uh, population in the world is increasing. People are going more from rural areas uh, to cities. 70% of the people in the coming decades are going to work in cities. So that's going to put a lot of requirements on sustainability uh, issues. And at the same time, you know, we're consuming too many resources of this planet, 1.6 times what the planet can regenerate and offer. So we have decided that the new plan will be doubling in many different uh, areas our contribution. Uh, so the first one is that we want to double the pace to the Paris Agreement from already a carbon neutrality situation, a very reduced level of CO2 emission. We're going to double our pace in line with the Paris Agreement. We also want to double our circular revenues. You know, we talk about 3D printing luminaires, for instance. We talk also about luminaires that are completely modular, uh, where you can uh, have different components of those luminaires that are going to have a second life. We're also talking about services, meaning that uh, we offer a follow-up through the full life cycle and we make our product, uh, you know, revive, you know, a few times. Uh, we're talking about doubling what we call our brighter lives uh, contribution in terms of turnover. That's going to be one third of the turnover as well as circular revenue. This is about, you know, food security, which is a domain where we are extremely involved. And we also talk about doubling our positive impact to diversity and inclusion. One of the elements that we're looking at is uh, women in leadership roles, and we believe that at the end of 2025, we should at least achieve uh, 34% of women in leadership positions. So, uh, sorry, I'm a bit quick in in, in uh, um, explaining all this, but it's a very, very ambitious plan. We're starting already from a very good position. Eric, let me um, let me play the cynic round the desk here. Um, a lot of people will look at this and say, here's another company that's feeding us greenwash. You've gone through the process of achieving this, but you've used carbon offsets to do it. So let me ask you two questions. One is, who's asking for this? Do you have a major shareholder who's threatening to disinvest if you don't go down this path? And the second question is, given that you are having to do offsetting, to achieve this. This is not a, a perpetual structural adjustment to how the business is currently operating. Um, how sustainable is it going forward and what is it costing you? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I think this is a very important question. First of all, for us, it's a belief and a commitment. You know, we started eight to 10 years ago and we made that commitment to be carbon neutral into a 20. We were not pushed by anybody but if you look at sustainability, it's an integral part of the purpose of the company, which is to unlock the extraordinary potential of light for uh, brighter lives and a better world. And brighter lives and better world is also the name 
of our sustainability program. So we were not pushed. We did it. Now, I understand that it's the fashion to talk about ESG at this point in time. But for us, we've been doing this very naturally in the past years. Getting to a um, gross uh, zero carbon footprint is virtually impossible. And I just take one element, which is about you know traveling, whether products are traveling, whether people are traveling. So it's impossible to get to a zero carbon footprint. Now, take into account the fact that we're talking about less than 300 kilotons of CO2 per year that we still need to offset. And the way we have decided to do the offsetting is by bringing to our people different projects on a yearly basis that are corresponding to our values and where we believe that uh, there is an interest for us to participate as a company. So I'm going to give you example, reforestation uh, in Colombia or in Zimbabwe. We have also a big involvement uh, in a solar project in the Gulf region. We're also very involved in a wind project uh, in India. So as you can see, our people in the company select these projects and they can also on a voluntary basis uh, participate if they if they if they want to. So um, offsetting is part of it, but we're offsetting a very limited part of our footprint, and we get our people to participate to this. Eric, let me come at this from a different point of view. And good morning to you, sir. By the way. Um, Technology is the key in many ways for us to achieve longer term goals with carbon neutrality, regardless of offsets and, and, and your discussion with Jeff there as well. But a lot of that IP, a lot of that technology is under threat as well. And there is resource competition on that front as well. So let me ask you a question about bigger IP concerns. Do you have concerns about the theft of the IP that is going to get you and your company to longer term technological success in this? Because I'm hearing about theft coming from state sponsors, left, right and centre. Do you think Signify is being dragged into one, a cyber war uh, and two, um, regional issues regarding protectionism of IP? 20% of the patent that we generate, and we are the company in the lighting industry that generates the highest level of patent. You know, we spend between four to four and a half percent of our turnover uh, in uh, R&D on a yearly basis. 20% of these patents are put together in a program uh, which we call uh, Enabled, where basically a lot of different companies in the world participate. So there are licenses of that program so that they can access uh, the technology. And we're counting thousands of other companies in the lighting industry that participate to that project. So that's one way, Steve, and good morning also, by the way, that's one way for us to be able to make sure that we make our IP available uh, to other companies through uh, this uh, licensing program. Now, there's one thing, Steve, we need always to do a little bit more to be in advance compared to others in order to keep our technological advantage. Let me give you an example. We're talking about sustainability. Let's talk about food security. If we are growing uh, crops, uh, we can multiply the yield by a factor five. And if it's vertical farming, up uh, to a factor 11 to 15. At the same time, uh, we are consuming 20 times less water than in traditional farming. And we know which light to apply at the right time of the development of the crop in order to optimize the yield. And it's totally natural. No additive, no pesticide, 
no herbicide. This is what we call a light recipe. So it's not something that we can patent, but it's something which is quite complicated to copy because you need to have an in-depth understanding of how the crop is actually developing. And we put right. AI on this to push it further, meaning that if you look at uh, temperature, humidity, airflow, and we have also, when we grow lettuce, a camera showing the development of the lettuce, you put all that in um, a, a, a machine learning uh, engine, and you're able to permanently improve the yield. So we need to stay always, always uh, above competition by continuing to invest in technology. Fabulous. Okay, we'll get to the answer to the question, which I actually asked you a little bit later on another occasion, Eric. But look, loving your uh, passion for it and congratulations on those carbon neutral goals. Uh, Eric Rondelat, the CEO uh, of Signify. Now, let's get back to, well, let's stay with technology as well, because over uh, in Como, seems a long while ago now. Anyway, at Ambrosetti Forum, uh, I spoke to uh, Marco Avera, who is the uh, CEO of SNAM, and we talked about uh, more uh, future technologies uh, and what this means for the energy sector. He's passionate about hydrogen. Everyone agrees with that. By 2050, at least in Europe, we have to get gas out. We need new types of gas so we can have biomethane, we can have low carbon gases, we can have zero carbon gases like hydrogen. But there's still a long way to go to get rid of diesel and coal and replace those with gas is, is very uh, environmentally friendly because it's a lot less CO2 and at today's prices it's very convenient for me. And yet many today. people, and this is right into your ballpark, don't want to invest in that gas infrastructure uh, in either whether it's the United States or whether it's this part of the world. They're concerned about the low prices as well and getting a return on that investment longer term as well. Is that a realistic concern? I, I think it's true that prices right now uh, in many parts of the world are, are extraordinarily depressed so no one's really investing right now. But what we need to do is to get gas clean and gas green. And, and that transition will require hundreds of billions of dollars of new investments. We need some policy nudges, some pushes, some incentives to make it happen. Not huge. Not, we don't need to do all the things we did for solar, uh, but we need some help from policymakers. And that will really unleash a very positive transition. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.